really glad to be with you today and the next couple of Sundays. So looking forward to, uh, to some time together. As I thought about where we would go with our time together, the Lord took me to the Psalms. Um, I don't know about you, but in the summer, uh, it just feels right to spend some time in the Psalms. And so I, I usually find my way there in my Bible reading, my devotional time. I find my way to the Psalms in the summertime as we take time, hopefully, to recharge a little bit, rest from our normal routines, uh, maybe seek the Lord in some unique and, and fresh ways. Uh, the Psalms speak to that because they're so real. Uh, so many of the Psalms are so raw. They're so emotional. And we can so easily identify But what I love about the Psalms is they each take on uh, a certain nature and a certain character. They're pointing us in a certain direction. And so today we're going to look at a Psalm that's going to point us up in worship to the Lord. Next week we're going to look at a Psalm that's going to point us in to to discover how we are growing and what God is doing in our lives and what is He calling us to and what work is He doing in us to make us more and more like Jesus. And then uh, in a couple of weeks we're going to look at a Psalm that's going to point us out to see what God is doing around us, what is God doing among the nations, and how has he called us to join him there. And I pray that as we spend some time in the Psalms, the Lord will speak to your heart in a fresh way. And uh, this will be a great time of renewal and a great time of encouragement and challenge for you. So if you've got a Bible with you today, I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is where we're going to be today. If you've got your phone or your tablet, I guess I should say turn on your Bible and scroll uh, to Psalm 8, right? Uh, Psalm 8 is where we're going to be, and we're going to talk about the subject of worship today. And when you hear that word worship, or when I ask you, to you, what is worship? Often, our first thought is is to think about the, the moment of the service just before the sermon, right? Everything that we do that leads up to the sermon, the choir singing, and the praise team, and the the, the congregational songs like we, we just sang. We may think of a particular genre of music, right? And often our responses to worship and how we, how we feel about worship is very dependent upon what's taken place during that particular worship service. If the songs were just right, like we, we sung some of our favorite worship songs and they really connected with where we are in, in our life and what God's doing in our lives, uh, then we may walk out uh, of a worship service feeling just great feeling. Man, the Lord has spoken. We have met with the Lord. God has done something powerful in our lives, right? But then there's other times where maybe we we just kind of ho-hum our way through worship, right? Maybe our minds are a little bit distracted. Maybe we sing a song we're not that familiar with, or maybe we sing in a particular genre that's not really our favorite, whichever, you know, that might be, whatever your preference might be. Maybe, maybe the service takes on a tone that's a little bit different, and for whatever reason, that just doesn't float your boat. And so you may kind of walk out feeling a little ho-hum about the day. I know that doesn't happen often around here, I'm sure, right? But when we think about worship, we think about those that time in the service we gather in here leading up to the sermon. It's why we have a worship pastor or a worship team. It's why we have a worship budget. It's why we have a worship service order, right? I was handed one when I got here this morning that told me what was going to come up. Somebody met and planned that throughout this week. Now, all of that is absolutely worship. What we're doing right now is worship. But I believe Psalm 8 gives us a much larger view of worship, a much much greater vision of worship, what worship is and why we worship and even when we worship. And I pray that as we walk through this psalm, 
that you will see that yourself, that you will leave here today with an expanded vision of what worship is, that you will leave here today with a, with a vision of worship that goes far beyond circumstances, it goes far beyond our environment, it goes far beyond the style of music, it goes far beyond any of those things that we might determine uh, the power of worship now, but that we would have a, a vision of worship that will be greater than any of that because our vision of worship won't be rooted in us. It won't be rooted in our circumstances. It won't be rooted in a style, but it will be rooted in the goodness and the greatness of our God who's worthy of all of our worship. So if you've got your Bibles open and ready to go, Psalm 8, I want to read through it in its entirety, and then we're going to come back and talk through it a little bit as God gives us a large vision for worship. So you follow along your copy of God's Word, Psalm 8. The psalmist writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8 is unique in that the psalmist never gives an imperative command to actually do anything. It's really serving as an invitation because there is a very clear point. This is a psalm of praise. The, the psalmist is drawing our hearts to the greatness of who God is, the goodness of what God has done, and it is for the purpose that the readers, the hearers of this word would worship the Lord. But he never actually commands us to worship. Because when we have a right view of the greatness of God, the goodness of God, we can't help but worship. Which is why, verse 1, very familiar phrase, it's a familiar song. You've probably heard this verse. You've probably sung this song. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now that's not just an introductory phrase. It's not just a good title of a song. That, that sentence is packed with meaning as we begin to understand worship. The psalmist very specifically uses the word, the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, to say, O Lord, you are the God, there is none other but you. You are the one covenant-keeping God. You are the one true God. You are the creator and sustainer of all things. You are our God and there is none other. So he says, O Lord, but then he makes it more personal. He uses the name Adonai, our Lord. You're not just a God out there somewhere, but you are our God. We have made you our Lord. We've surrendered our lives to you. We have placed our hope and our faith in you and your promises and who you are and what you have done and what you have promised to do. You are God and you are our God. And then he says, how majestic is your name. He's speaking of the glory of God. The sum total of all of God's attributes and all of who he is and all of what he has done. It is majestic. 
He, he is glorious. And he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy. He is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of our glory because his name, who he is and what he has done is majestic. And then that last phrase, in all the earth, is critical. It's critical. Because the psalmist is not saying that God is great and God is glorious and God is worthy of worship from this particular people who were born in this particular nation, who speak this particular particular language, who are of this particular socioeconomic group. He is, he is not saying that this God is great and glorious and worthy of the worship of this people or that people, but he's saying this great God is the one true God and he is worthy of our worship, not just of this people or that people, but of all people. He, he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of their worship. He is worthy of being given glory, not just in this place or that place, but in all the earth. And so this is a very purposeful phrase, packed with meaning where the psalmist is saying, God is worthy of our worship. And then in verse 2, in verse 2, it's a bit of an odd metaphor, but it also has significant meaning. He says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, he is not specifically speaking of babies and infants. He's using this as a metaphor. Now, think about, for some of us, this is harder to remember than others, okay? But think about when you were a baby, when you were an infant, or think about when your children were babies, when you first brought them home from the hospital, when, when you held an infant in your hands, or maybe if, if, you're a, if you're an aunt or an uncle, think about holding your niece or your nephew, think about holding your grandchild. Never in our lives are we more dependent upon somebody else than when we are a baby or when we are an infant. At no other time in our lives are we as helpless and unable to provide for and care for and do for ourselves as when we are a baby, when we are an infant. And what he is speaking of is that God is worthy of our worship even when we find ourselves in a state of helplessness. Even when we find ourselves in a state of great dependence, in a state of great need, even when we find ourselves in a state of great hopelessness, God is still worthy of our worship. And when we worship Him in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our helplessness, in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our need, the psalmist says that He uses the worship of the weakest to turn back the attacks of the enemy. The worship of the most needy, Helpless, weak believer and follower of Jesus is stronger than the strongest attack of the kingdom of darkness. And God takes the worship of the weak to turn back the attacks of the enemy. Now that is powerful. And we can all think of plenty of seasons in our lives where we've experienced grief, we've experienced loss, we've experienced need. You might be in the middle of one of those right now. You came in here today loaded down with emotion and worry and anxiety, fear, grief, hopelessness. We can all speak to those times. We know we've had those seasons in our lives. 
You might be in it right now. But here's the broader application. At what point in our lives are we ever not dependent upon the grace and the power of God? Shouldn't this be our posture 24-7, 365? All day, every day, every week, every month, every year. Are we not in absolute dependence upon the grace and the power and the provision and the protection and the leadership and the guidance of our great God? Are we not? And so the psalmist is saying, our great God, He's our God. He's the one true God. And He's worthy of our worship. Even in the midst of our most significant, deepest need. We can worship Him. And He's worthy of our worship. And then the psalmist gives us two very clear, large reasons why God is worthy of our worship. And why we worship Him even in the midst of our Weakness. The first is this. We worship God for the staggering enormity of His creation. We worship God for the staggering enormity of His creation. And the last part of verse 1, he says, You've set your glory above the heavens. And then down in verse 3, he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man? That you're mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him. Now, In these words, and this is a theme that we see throughout the Psalms, David may very well have been inspired by his time serving as a shepherd. Uh, Some of you may know that David spent a large portion of his life as a shepherd in a field surrounded by sheep. And do you know what that means you, you have? You have lots of really clear nights where you're very lonely because sheep aren't great conversationalists, right? And and you find yourselves looking up into the clear night sky, seeing the beauty and the enormity of stars and moon and planets and whatever there is to behold. And and David probably did what you and I would do, and we look out in the clear night sky and just, you know, wow, I feel so small. But as David could look up and see the beauty, the majesty of God's creation, he would write these words, you've set your glory In the heavens, you have revealed how great and majestic and wonderful and mighty you are in the heavens. Now, David didn't know what I'm about to tell you, right? Because he didn't have National Geographic. Like, I found a copy of National Geographic that helped me understand this, right? He didn't know. He didn't know all that that we now know about the universe, the expanse of the universe, our galaxy, our solar system. You know, he, he didn't know about any of that. There, there weren't Hubble telescopes, you know, back then. That wasn't going on. There weren't, there weren't space shuttles and, and satellites and all these things that, are, that we have at our disposal. And we are only scratching the surface of what we know. But, but we do know this as a helpful illustration to understand the enormity of God's creation. Listen to this quote. If the Milky Way galaxy were the size of the entire continent of North America. Our solar system, so sun, planets, where we are, planet Earth, part of that, our solar system would fit in a coffee cup. This vast neighborhood of our sun, in truth, the size of a coffee coffee cup, 
fits along with several billion other stars and their minions in the Milky Way, one of perhaps, listen, 100 billion such galaxies in the universe. That's a lot of coffee cups. To send a light speed message to the end of the universe would take, listen, 20 billion with a B years to send a message at light speed across the enormity of the universe that God made. How did he make it? The psalmist says, with his fingers. He didn't even break a sweat. The Lord made this universe with his fingers. None of this was difficult for him. And not only did he make it, but listen, he rules and reigns over all of it, and he works through all of it to declare his glory. He he works through his creation to declare his glory. And it's so easy to lose perspective on this, right? We get so consumed with what's going on in our lives, where we have to go this week, the emails that are waiting on us to respond to, the, the bills that have to be paid, right? We, we get so caught up in all that, we forget that we're one of about 7 billion people on this tiny little planet that's a part of this solar system, that's a part of this galaxy, that's a part of this massive universe that would take 20 billion years traveling at light speed to cross. And all of that is under the rule and reign of our God who created all of it and who uses every square inch of it to declare His glory. Every beautiful sunrise, every gorgeous sunset, every summer storm that messes up your afternoon outside plans, (laughs) every star in the sky, every crash of an ocean wave, all of it, is declaring the glory of our great God who rules and reigns over every square inch of it. And he uses it. He uses it. Francis Collins was the head of the Human Genome Project. He was a confessed atheist. He came to faith in Christ after some time through his work in the project. And he wrote a book called The Language of God where he shared the moment that he placed his faith in Jesus. Listen to what Collins says. He says, I had to make a choice. A full year had passed since I decided to believe in some sort of God. And now I was being called to account. On a beautiful fall day as I was hiking in the Cascade Mountains during my first trip west of the Mississippi, the majesty and beauty of God's creation overwhelmed my resistance. As I rounded a corner and saw a beautiful and unexpected frozen waterfall hundreds of feet high, I knew the search was over. The next morning, I knelt in dewy grass as the sun rose and surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. The heavens and all of creation are telling the glory of God because he made all of it with his fingers. He rules and reigns over every square inch of it and he uses all of it to declare of the greatness of who he is and help us to see his glory, that he is worthy of our worship. So we worship God for the staggering enormity of his creation. Now when we understand, even what little bit we might understand right now, how great and vast his creation is, 
we echo the psalmist question in verse 4. What is man that you're mindful of him? Translation, who in the world am I, right? Who, who am I that while you've got this massive universe that you've created and that you're ruling and reigning over and that you are working within and every square inch of it using it to declare your glory, who in the world am I that you know me, that you care anything about me, which is the second reason why we worship the Lord, and that is for his stunning love and grace for humanity. That this great God, who made the heavens and the earth with his fingers, who rules and reigns over all of it, who works through all of it to declare his glory, that he would make us and that he would know us and that he would invite us into relationship with him, what is man that you would be mindful of him? Verse 5 through 7 give us a commentary, really, uh, off of the original creation account in Genesis. When God made Adam and Eve in perfect relationship with him and with one another, he gave them a very clear purpose to, to have dominion over the earth. The psalmist says you, you made man uh, just a little below the heavenly beings. The translation there, heavenly beings, is generous because really in the psalmist's mind is you made, you made us, you made man and woman just a little beneath you, God. Not that we're made just a little above the beasts of the earth. We're, we're made just a little below the Lord. In his image, for his glory, with a purpose to carry out his glory in all the earth. To steward our lives for his glory. Just in your body. Your body bears the imago dei, the image of God. And in your body, my body, and how our, our bodies are knit together and how they function. We see the glory of God. The average person, you probably didn't know this, your heart's going to beat about 40 million times this year. And you're not really going to think about a single one of them, are you? To today, your body's going to pump about 3,000 gallons of blood through your system, through your, your vessels, your veins, your arteries. You've got about 10 billion nerve cells in your brain. That are, that are working hard right now to take in everything that you're hearing and seeing and experiencing and everything that you're processing to then figure out what to do with what you are hearing. You have about 100 million receptors in each of your retina, each of your retinas that are able to take in visuals and colors and images and process them in conjunction with the brain. Your skin has about 2 million sweat glands to regulate your temperature. You didn't know that, did you? You, you didn't think about your two million sweat glands except for the ones you wish would stop doing what they're doing, right? We're created in God's image for his glory. He knit you and me together in our mother's womb, in his image, for relationship with him, for his glory, with a divine purpose to steward our lives for his glory, to carry out God's plan in all the earth are two very purposeful words in verse 4 that the psalmist uses to describe the relationship between us and God. He says, he says what, is, what is man? Or who am I that you would be mindful of me? That word mindful speaks to a knowledge that God has of you and me, that he knows who you are. He put you together in your mother's womb. He gave you your gifts. He gave you your personality. He gave you your passion, your heart, your drive, your abilities. 
He knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows you. And he didn't just know you then, but he's known you every day of your life. You're coming and you're going. All that you've done. He even right now, the scripture tells us, has the hairs on our heads numbered. God is mindful of you. He knows you. But he doesn't just know you and know about you. This phrase in the second part of verse 4, the son of man that you care for him. That care for phrase speaks to a longing in God's heart for relationship with you. He doesn't just want to know about you, and he doesn't just want you and me to know about him, but he wants to know us. He wants us to know him. He longs for us to know him. It's why he has worked in and around us to reveal himself to us. It's why he uses his creation to declare his glory. It's why he himself stepped out of the throne room of heaven and became one of us to suffer and live and die and be resurrected so that we could have relationship with him. He knows about you. He longs for you to know him and to know the purpose that he has for your life, to steward your life for his glory and to carry out his purposes for his glory in all the earth. That's his desire for you and me. Now, here's where we run into a bit of a crossroads in Psalm 8. Because we know all is not right in our lives. Right? Even if you know the Lord and you have a relationship with Jesus, all is not always right in your life, is it? You don't always do what you know to be the right thing to do or what God would have you to do. You don't always follow through on those things that you intend to do. You experience brokenness in your family. We can look around our country and look around our world and see very clearly something has gone wrong, right? The Imago Dei, the image of God in each one of us has been marred and broken by our sin. Our, our lives do not function as they should. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with one another is broken. Our understanding and ability to carry out God's plan for our lives and God's plan in all the earth is broken. And it's broken by our sin. The psalmist says in verse 6, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. How many of you feel like you've got all things in your life perfectly under your feet, perfectly in control? Anybody feeling that way? Of course not. Why? Because sin has fractured what God has made. But here's the good news. And this is where we see the gospel thread in Psalm 8. God has not left us alone in our brokenness. God has not left us alone in a broken relationship from Him, broken relationships from one another, a broken understanding and ability to carry out His mission, His purpose for our lives. But what has God done? He has stepped out of the throne room of heaven. He put human flesh on, the scripture says, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of a virgin, lived a perfectly sinless life, died the substitutionary death that we deserve to die, where he paid the full penalty for our sin, 
through his death on the cross and his shed blood on our behalf, placed in a tomb for three days, uh, rose from the grave having conquered death, ascended back to the right hand of the Father, and one day, one day, though we do not have perfect dominion over sin and death now, one day, the sky will split open, Jesus will return, he'll make all things new, and through him and by him, we will rule and reign over sin and death for all of eternity. And this will not be to our praise and to our glory via anything we have done, but it will be to the praise of our great God who gave himself for us and who rescued us and who restored his glory in us restored us to right relationship with him, restored us to right relationship with one another, and restored our ability to carry out his plans for his glory in all the earth. That is why we will sing together, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of worship over all the earth. For the staggering enormity of his creation, for his stunning love and grace for you and me. The question to you and me today is this. Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Have you placed your faith in him? Or is he at work now? He's been at work. He's been revealing himself to you. He's been revealing his glory and his power to you. And now you're seeing clearly today. I would invite you, we have a time of invitation, I would invite you to come and grab one of your pastors by the hand and let them know, hey, today I need to surrender my life to Jesus. I need to be made right with God. 